This is Phil M. Jones, author of Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And marketingbookpodcast.com is also where you can send me a message with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations for the show. I love hearing from listeners like you from around the world. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. I respond to every single message I get from listeners, so please introduce yourself. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Phil M. Jones to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. Phil is the author of five international best-selling books and the youngest ever winner of the coveted British Excellence in Sales and Marketing Award. But let's go back in time. Phil entered the business world at the age of 14. With nothing more than a bucket and a sponge, he went from single-handedly washing cars at weekends to hiring friends working on his behalf, resulting in him earning more than his teachers by the time he was 15. When he was 18, Phil was offered the role of sales manager at the fashion retailer Debenhams, making him the youngest sales manager in the company's history. Later, he went on to work with several Premier League football clubs, securing sponsorships and licensing agreements, and then becoming a key part of a growing multi-million dollar property management business. Ten years ago, Phil took everything he'd learned about selling and sales from his previous roles and has made it his life's work to completely demystify the sales process and bring both simplicity and integrity to a world that is often full of big egos and even bigger lies. With this as Phil's core mission, he has gone on to deliver over 2,000 presentations in 56 countries across five continents, training more than two million people. Phil, congratulations on exactly what to say and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Doug. So the obvious question a lot of folks are going to have, maybe the first time listener, what the heck is a a book more about sales doing on the Marketing Book Podcast? And my response is always marketing people who do not understand sales are going to become increasingly irrelevant if they're not already. So there are many marketing folks that have never even gone on a sales call, which they should do. And that's why I like to have sales related topics on the show. But let me ask you something, Phil, what was it you didn't like uh, about the way sales was and is still perceived? I think my biggest challenge with with sales as a whole is, is where the celebration is. So the majority of people get super excited the day that somebody signs a contract, hands over a check, parts for the cash. And this means that the focus ends up being in all the wrong areas. If we shift the finish line out to a point in time where the consumer gets at least what was promised and maybe more so, then that change in focus is the thing that actually drives a easier conversations when we're looking to be able to influence the decision of somebody choosing you as opposed to somebody like you. But more importantly, it ends up with some integrity in conversation where it isn't built up on the 
sometimes mistruths that are associated towards being salespeople. And I ask rooms full of people when I kick off my seminars of adjectives that people would use to describe a stereotypical salesperson. It's very rare that I get an adjective back that anybody would like to be used to describe them. What are some of the terms you hear? Well, we get, you know, pushy, obnoxious, used cars, slimy, sleazy. You know, that's what just comes off the tip of somebody's tongue. And it tells me that the image that people see when they think of somebody looking to be able to influence a decision in a sales capacity is something that's quite ugly. Yet what might often happen from there is I then ask the same audience full of people for adjectives that would not describe a stereotypical salesperson, but a professional salesperson by alternative. And what happens is all the words change. They tell me that they're looking at, you know, good listeners, they're looking at people who are knowledgeable, that they're caring, they're passionate, they're empathetic. And they give me a list back of adjectives that people would be far happier to be concerned with. So my my work very much is about trying to change that lens and help people understand that sales professionals are an essential part of the process. And that the biggest reason that many people are not getting the results they're capable of is that all of their potential customers or a vast number of them are just stuck in indecision. And there's no way around being able to work them through that without having effective conversations. Mm-hmm. Let me just read one excerpt from the, the beginning of the book. My life's work has been dedicated to the forgotten art of spoken communication and the power that the right words at the right time can have to achieve the right results. Quite often, the decision between a customer choosing you over someone like you depends on your ability to know exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to make it count. This book delivers tactical insight into the power of words and provides tools to empower success-driven individuals to get more of what they want. Now, Phil, one of my favorite parts of the book is that you say that the, the primary job description of all sales professionals is to be a decision catalyst in, in the lives of their customers uh, and, and prospects. But an even more simple description is professional mind maker upper. Right. Explain. Well, I mean, how many people are stuck in maybe? And marketeers do this a lot, right? They bring somebody to the water's edge and they get a loose level of interest. And maybe a lead or inquiry comes in where somebody says, I'm kind of interested in what you're about, that then results in somebody just sending out information, a proposal, a, you know, a, a video, a, you know, a slide deck, etc., where somebody says, I quite like that. I need some time to think about it. Now, all of that effort and energy has gone through with the acquisition of the lead, with the conversation that's then followed, maybe a presentation of some form. But people are stuck there still thinking, well, I haven't made my mind up yet. Mm-hmm. And it's because... People haven't had the ability to have the right questions asked of them to find the clarity and the confidence to be able to then move forward with a decision. And one of the biggest reasons that I find that people are choosing alternative service providers or worst of all doing absolutely nothing is because they bumped into somebody who was more effective with conversation to get them to agree to make their mind up. Mm -hmm. So the subtitle to your book is The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. Magic Words, the title of one of your earlier books. What are magic words well magic words in my mind are words that talk straight towards people's subconscious brain and the reason i call them magic words is to give the user of them some feeling of additional confidence and power but what we're really looking at is utilizing precise examples of word choices that talk towards key principles that influence people's subconscious and the subconscious is powerful because it acts like a reflex 
it doesn't have to go through the consideration that most people do with their typical conversations. It kind of creates patterns and habits that we lean on. If we didn't use our subconscious, then what would happen is every day would be so tiring because even the smallest of decisions would need to go through huge amounts of processing and elimination that would lead to a huge amount of anxiety. Understanding where these patterns fit in daily conversations means that what you can do is point your questions towards a pre-programmed existing habit within others to get them out of the maybes and into the yeses and nos that actually makes buying or choosing or deciding or acting far, far easier for the other person. So we're about actually assisting the decision-making process. What magic words are is the ability to talk to that little voice inside somebody's head. And if any of you are sat there listening in right now thinking that you haven't got a little voice inside your head, then my friends, it's the little voice that's telling you you haven't got a little voice. <laughs> so you say that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment you're saying it. Right. Why? Why? Because, I mean, so many conversations that we have are repetitive. We think that we are these unique creatures. We think that what happens is everything is spontaneous. Yet it just isn't true. There are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations that we face in life and business time and time again that if we were just slightly better prepared for them, what we could have done is we could have made that conversation count more effectively. Think about the businesses right now. I'd imagine that in nearly every business, there is an inbound inquiry that is repetitive that then results in an either in-person meeting or a telephone conversation that should start in the exact same way every single time. But it doesn't. We find ourselves making it up time and time again, or there's an objection that every business is facing time and time and time again, that what happens is we come back at it with a different set of answers. So many people are fearful of scripts. They think, ah, what a script does is it, it like ties me in. It stops me from having the ability to be able to be free and be persuasive and be influential, and be charismatic and be my true self. But have you ever seen a movie and cried? Well, laughed or smiled like sure. you know, some form of huge emotion. That was just an actor reading a script. The difference is, is because they had that script, it allowed them to be able to provide their true selves to it, to be fully within that moment because they had the confidence of not worrying about what they're going to say. How many missed opportunities exist in every business? Because when a moment presents itself, somebody finds themselves lost for words. It is an absolute killer in business time and time again. And marketeers face this all the time too. Well, what they've done is done a wonderful job creating leads and inquiries and then don't put it over the finishing line because they haven't got the words to say to be able to move it to the next stage in the process. Mm -hmm. A lot of what's in your book, oh, most of all of it, it has direct implications for the types of content that, that marketers should be producing to better aid their, their sales folks. Right. And we talk about it as being a sales aid. Um, the content exactly what to say is a people aid. It's a conversation aid. And many marketing pieces I would class as a conversation more so than a broadcast. If we're looking to engage in some way, we need to ask better questions. My experience is, is that questions start conversations. Conversations lead to relationships. Relationships create opportunities and opportunities become sales. Those five steps will never go out of fashion all the time I have air in my lungs. I strongly believe in that. And I think the better we get at asking questions, the more effective we become in conversations, we will create more opportunities and make more sales. Mm -hmm. So on page one, I had to laugh. Because it's as if you were writing it for, not just for me, but for the listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast. You said, one thing I am certain of, though, is that you're getting even this far in the book tells me that you are open-minded about change and are serious about your personal success. <laughs> 
So right. That's, that's very true of, of, of the folks that listen to the show and certainly, you know, a book nerd like me. With that in mind, I wanted to touch on a few of the, the words and the, and the concepts behind them, which, full disclosure, I, I'm stealing. In fact, today, I'm, this afternoon, I'm going to be talking to a prospect. <laughs> it's like I'm going to have Phil M. Jones there with me. That was the goal of the book. Okay. So you write that one of the most common reasons you hear from people as to why they fail to introduce an idea or a product or a service to others is the fact that they're, they're fearful of rejection that they might receive. What do you, what do you recommend? Well, th- this fear of rejection is a very real thing. Like people just decide to not introduce an idea to somebody for fear of them saying no. And then I even hear people say, like, I lost that sale. I lost it. And I'm like, you did? When did you have it? <laughs> right. Right. Because if you didn't have the thing in the first place, you can't have lost it. And um, I think we have to shift our mind around on this. But knowing people were so fearful of rejection, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if I could help people develop a formula that would allow them to introduce just about anything to just about anybody at any point in time that was completely rejection free? And it works around a couple of very basic pieces of psychology is first piece of psychology is that if you can suggest something to the left or to the right of somebody with absolute clarity rather than straight at them and allow them to be able to do part of the movement themselves, then what happens is they become far more interested in it. Curiosity is a massive driver of, of, of people's movement. So you can, you can kind of uh, shroud an idea with some curiosity. So what that would then mean is that if I was looking to introduce an idea to somebody, instead of me aiming it straight at them, I would say, hey, I'm not sure if it's for you. Now, by me saying I'm not sure if it's for you, that triggers little voice. Little voice says, firstly, well, I'll be the judge of that. That's right. <laughs> and the second thing it then says is, is, well, what is it? You know, curiosity comes and leans in. So say, for example, you know who the perfect type of organization is that you'd love to do business with. Say that what you're looking to do is that you're looking to help grow the dentist industry within your local area and that you live in Baltimore and that you're looking to be able to work with local dentists that are interested in being able to grow their practice over the next five years. That's your little niche of a target market you'd go for. You could say, I'm not sure if it's for you, and then introduce the idea that you wouldn't happen to know, but I'm missing another little three-letter word in the science behind this sequence. Have you ever been maybe in an employed position? in your career at some point, and your employer has pulled you into a side discussion and said, hey, look, Doug, we love what you do here. We think that you're a valued member of the team, and we can see that you're really trying, but. Yes. Now, what happens is, is that three-letter word actually undoes everything that was said prior to it, and the only thing you can focus on is everything that follows the but. It negates. It means that you should use it really sparingly in any of your marketing copy and in any of your conversations without truly understanding its impact. What it means, though, in this scenario is if I want to introduce an idea to anybody completely rejection free, I can say, I'm not sure if it's for you, but you wouldn't happen to know. So by me then linking that whole thing together, what the subconscious voice hears is, firstly, I'll be the judge of that. Secondly, it hears, well, what is it? And thirdly, we then just bypass that whole thing to get them thinking, well, you probably want to look at this. And it becomes a really fun way of introducing ideas at any point in time, because what's the worst that somebody can say? They could say, well, no, that's not really for me. And to which I think you could say, yeah. I didn't it's not even that bad. It's not even that bad. The worst that somebody says is I'll have a think for you. Is what? I'll have a think for you is, is leave it with me. <laughs> that's as bad as it gets. Like in, in real form is like, hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but no, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But I'll have a think. I'll see what I can think of for you. 
So it starts to lead towards them wanting to give you a helpful answer in some way. Even if they don't follow through on it, we still have the intent of helpfulness, which brings confidence towards you being able to introduce your ideas to others. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about one of the others that I've, you know, I've seen myself in almost all of these situations in, in the course of my business career, whether it's trying to sell something or, or just deal with other people. It, talk about what you recommend to people who when they find themselves in a conversation that quickly becomes a debate because they're speaking with some jerk who thinks they know better and and maybe even wants to lecture you or or patronize you with their opinions. Yeah, no, I get this all the time. And and I think what we're looking at here is, is when somebody else is standing on the position of expert. We know this situation remarkably well, where somebody is almost dressing you down with their advice or their expertise on a subject matter, trying to tell you stuff that you know to be different. Now, the trouble with a with an argument is my experience of arguments means they end up with winners and losers. Now, if this means that you're the winner, what's the other person? The other person's clearly the loser. And the trouble with people that feel like losers is they don't feel like continuing the relationship and going on to spend money with you. I wonder if there's ever been an example in the past where you even thought to yourself, you know what, I've told them. That'll teach them. And then you've never gone on to be able to have anything constructive with that person again in the future. Yeah, you probably burn the bridge. Yeah. Our goal is to be able to move their point of view. So I can't ask somebody to think differently unless I choose to change the position that they're looking at it from. And it's that ability to move the vantage point on somebody's point of view and perhaps even change the lens on it that allows them to change their mind. That's always our goal in negotiations, to get the other person to see it differently, not tell the other person they're wrong. The way we do this is that we question the evidence or the knowledge based on which their opinion is founded upon. So let's take an example where somebody says, you know, oh, we've tried that that way before and it's never worked out for us. Oh, everybody that's listening has heard that before. Yeah. So no, thank you. We tried this before. It didn't work. So I would now preface a question back in the other direction that would be prefaced with the words, what do you know about? So what do you know about the way that things have changed in our industry over the last six months? And in particular, the way things, the way we do things differently here at, insert name of company. The minute I preface a question with what do you know about, particularly if I'm fairly confident that the knowledge base of the other person is slim to none, what I get back in the other direction is, well, you know, not a lot. So we've completely disregarded everything they made as a strong argument a second ago, and we've earned ourselves the right to be able to reposition ourselves in the differences that we bring. We've seized power in the conversation, allowing us to take the role of expert to then re-educate the other person slowly and softly so they could perhaps change their mind, change their point of view because we've gained permission. So if you say, what do you know, I thought that people might get a bit defensive. Um, timing is everything. And not only that, the tonality of where you say it is everything. So, you know, normally what's happened is they've thrown a punch at you, right? That's where this is coming. So you've suggested an idea to somebody or you've presented something that you believe to be true and they've suggested otherwise it's not. So what we might want to do first, if we're being really tactical, is to show some empathy towards their understanding. And you might be saying things like, I get you. No, I understand. I see where you're coming from. Tell me this, though. What do you know about the way that things have changed? So by just softening a touch first with some form of agreement and or apology, then what we've done is we've earned the right to be able to ask that next question. Right. Sort of a softening statement. Yeah. And that softening statement typically wants to be an agreement and or an apology. Mm-hmm. So we'll say, for example, when somebody says, that sounds crazy money, like, like, like it just seems way too much for what it is that you're asking for. I might say, look, I agree entirely. You know, when I'm looking to make important decisions, I want to make sure I get the best value too. Whew. Softens. 
But what do you know about the way we really do things here and the kind of results that we achieve for our clients? Well, I don't really know. Well, the way we tend to do things here is that we do the proper job and that what we do is that we take the time to truly understand. And what our clients go on to say that we do differently to everybody else in the market is they say this, 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 and this. And in the 17 years that we've been doing business, we've only ever had delighted clients happy with the investments that they've made. So I understand that we may be significantly different in investment versus everybody else that you've talked to. But that's how we go on to be able to receive, achieve demonstrably different results. So it's about controlling conversation. But what does this also mean is it means you have to be confident in your own beliefs of whatever it is you're asking somebody to do is something you can back up. That of all the ones in there, I thought would be the probably the biggest challenge for me personally. That's why I wanted to, to bring that up. Uh, you say that every decision any human makes <laughs> is made at least twice. And right. the, the decision is first made in their mind, hypothetically, before it's ever made a reality. Talk about how best to capitalize on that. Our mind, our memory is a powerful tool in order to be able to drive decision. Have you ever found yourself saying the words to yourself? Like, I just couldn't see myself doing that. I suppose, yeah, sure. Yeah, we say those things either internally or even out loud towards other people. And until you found yourself in a position where you can see yourself doing something, the chance of you doing that thing becomes slim to none. So we've got to get ourselves, certainly from a conscious decision point of view, is if we're making a decision consciously, we have to have imagined ourselves doing that thing ahead of time. What this means is as marketeers or as sales professionals, if at first what we can do is guarantee that we've had the other person see themselves in the outcome that we're looking to invite them towards, it means that when we go on to invite them towards that thing later, internally they think, well, I've imagined myself doing this. I've seen it. So our job then becomes is can we insert images into other people's minds? We hear about this a lot in marketing right now that it's all about the story, right? We've got to tell stories because if we can tell stories, people will buy the emotion behind the story. And all that's true. But then you think, I've got to be a story writer, and I'm not a story writer. How do I sell, tell better stories? So I figured here, if I just take a simple example, put it into exactly what to say, and know that we were really good at telling stories or certainly receiving stories when we were kids. When we were kids, we would know that when somebody said the words to us once upon a time, we'd think this is going to be good. We couldn't help but open our imagination up and allow somebody to insert images into our mind. It was like literally opening up the photo viewer was the words once upon a time. Now, we can't say once upon a time to adults and expect it to work in the same way. But we can use the magic words, just imagine. Just imagine. So if I said, just imagine six months on from now, you found yourself in a situation where your business has grown significantly and you've got an extra 100,000 in profit, what would you be spending the money on? You've, you've brought the future to the present. Correct. But I can also do it with an away motivated thing too. So you'll know that people leave a move to for any potential gain, but they're also more likely to move to avoid a loss. More likely. So just, yeah. So just imagine, you know, you failing to be able to implement any new systems, continuing to do what you've always done, and your competition sailing past you, taking your best customers. Yeah, then you've really got them thinking, and they're seeing themselves in that story. Yeah. And what we have is we have the ability here to be able to drive people's decisions by inserting images in their mind. And what I haven't done is I haven't told them what to do. I've just shown them outcomes or potential outcomes to allow them to be able to see with honesty and transparency what the results of us working together could go on to be able to achieve. So you talk about one of the biggest reasons that ideas fail to get traction is that people say they just don't have time to, to consider them. I just don't have time to think about that. Talk about how you're, you've been able to get around that with your, your words in this instance. So, so this is particularly kind of 
where we face an objection, where somebody's accepted an idea, they think it's a good thing, but they are kind of coming away from it saying, I just need some time to think about it. That's the circumstances you're talking about, correct? Yeah, I think it over. Yeah. And we bump into this all the time. And this used to drive me crazy. And why did it drive me crazy? Because I knew it wasn't true. Like people say that salespeople are liars. My beliefs is that the customers aren't so good at telling the truth either. Like I know... <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean that somebody's going to go back to their home or their office and do a SWOT analysis or a pros and cons over the decision. I need some time to think about it or we want to think it over. Nine times out of 10 means that this is a stall. We're just pushing this away for another day. Absolutely. Also apply some other context to it is what can often happen here is that you've gone through quite a detailed process, invested time, money, energy and expertise to even get to this point in time typically at the request of the other person as well. And quite often, you've not been paid a single penny for this at this moment. So my belief here isn't that somebody needs to buy. I just think they need to be truthful with you. I don't know whether you've been in the situation where somebody says, I need some time to think about it. And in that moment, you think, you know, what? What is it? Right? (laughs) And you want to be able to ask a rude, obnoxious question, but you can't because you've told them you're nice and you're friendly. Mm -hmm. So I thought I've got to find a way of being able to ask rude, obnoxious questions without sounding rude or obnoxious. (laughs) I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could develop a set of words that could allow me to turn rude or obnoxious into soft and fluffy? And I devised a way of being able to do this by creating permission for my direct question, by inserting the magic words as a preface first, the words just out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. I learned if I preface a direct question with the words just out of curiosity, I can ask whatever on earth I like. So client would say, I just need some time to think about it. And I could say, look, just out of curiosity, what is it specifically you need some time to think about? zip it. Or I could really push a little further. I could say, look, just out of curiosity, what is it that would need to happen for you to make a decision over something like this? Zip. Or I could push again and I could say, look, just out of curiosity, what is it that's stopping you from doing something like this at this time? Zip. Now the pause becomes your friend. One of maybe two things is likely to happen. Firstly, around 12 seconds will go by. Feel like about three weeks. (laughs) And um, they'll come back with an honest answer. The honest answer might be, you know, we thought we could do this for X. It seems like we're going to need to have more like three times X to be able to do anything worthwhile. And we're not in a position to do that right now. Now, can you deal with that level of honesty? You can more often than not, like do something with that. Even if you doing something with that is processing in your own mind and realizing they weren't your client is enough to be able to do something with it. But them going away, needing to think about it and you thinking, well, I'm going to now follow up and pester and push and nag and, you know, try and drive them into a decision isn't the truth we're looking for. So we get some truth. But if it's not 12 seconds and it's 13, 14, 15, 16, this is good news. It means they're searching for an excuse and they can't find one, which empowers a decision. This is a scenario where he or she who speaks next loses. Please make sure it's not you. So what I would encourage people to do is hold out the pause and don't be surprised if what comes back is the consumer comes back saying, you know what? You're right. There's nothing to think about. You know what? Nothing needs to happen. Or you know what? There's nothing that's stopping me. And it's the very fact that you were prepared to ask them a question they weren't prepared to ask themselves that when they did ask themselves and couldn't find an answer to it, it empowered them to make a decision that you previously knew was right. Mm -hmm. Now, you also talk about another one where the the, the response is, when would be a good time? (laughs) Talk about how that one works. Yeah. Appointment creation is is a key goal towards controlling a sales conversation. And it often results in people saying things like, you know, tell me, you know, trying to get an appointment from somebody. And we're trying to get an appointment from somebody and that they're just sort of still up in the air. Now, somebody says, I do need some time to think about it. They say that they're in a situation that they uh, don't know what they want to do. I might say, well, when would be a good time for me to call you again? 
Now, if I say when would be a good time, I'm not saying is there a good time. By me removing the yes, no on it and creating an assumption in the fact that there will always be a good time, I'm going to get a version of yes in my answer. When would be a good time for us to be able to speak again on this? Well, I'm going to need like a week or so. So what are we today? Today's a Friday. So if I give you through till next Friday, maybe the early part of the following week, Monday or Tuesday, when would be good for you? Well, Monday be better. Morning or afternoon, when suits you best? Well, afternoons would be great. What, somewhere like 4 p.m. If I haven't heard from you beforehand, why don't we schedule a call for 4 p.m. Monday? Does that work for you? Now what happens is I'm in control of the conversation. Let's play this out with something even more so than what's in the book. There's the worst thing that anybody can ever say when they are following up a phone call conversation is the words, is now a good time to talk? Now, they're still commonly used in today's marketplace, but those words were appropriate for a period of time when people didn't have cell phones, when they had house phones that called, that you couldn't see who was dialing, and that when you thought the phone was ringing, it was an emergency. In today's day and age, what do you do if it's not a good time to talk? Don't answer the phone. Right. So what happens today when we say it's now a good time to talk, the other person thinks, are you an idiot? Why do you think I answered? Right. Absolutely. So we start a conversation that we want to be a good conversation with a stupid question. What happens, though, is if you schedule every next communication point, what you can do by alternative is you can start a phone call with the words, I'm just phoning as promised. Now, if you start a phone call with the words, I'm just phoning as promised, what is the only thing somebody can say back? Well, not much. Right. But some form of gratitude is going to come. Thank you. That's great. Brilliant. You know, some form of positive gratitude laced response. Now, if somebody mouths the words thank you to you, then chances are, oh, well, their feeling is they're feeling a level of indebtedness. You know, that's why we say thank you, because we feel indebted. So if I can start conversations with people feeling indebted, knowing that I might want something in that conversation, is that better than starting a conversation where I'm fearful that I'm being rude or pushy? Right, right. Well, now, speaking of thank you, talk about how that is a a cue for asking for a referral. People love referred business, right? Everybody loves it. And I sit in my seminar. People aren't too good at asking for it. No, they're awful. They're awful. Because I say this to people like, who loves referrals? Everybody's hands go up. I'm like, who asks for referrals? Everybody's, you know, every given time. And like a third of the hands go down and then the rest follow pretty quickly afterwards. And people aren't asking for what they want. And I don't think the reason they're not asking is um, because they don't want to. I think it's because they either don't know how or they don't know when. Timing is everything when it comes to asking for a referral. And then permission is remarkably important too. There are thousands of times that you could ask for a referral. But they all relate back to one period of time. They all relate back to a period of time where the consumer is happy with what they've received from you. When consumers are happy, they say one simple thing. They typically mouth the words, thank you. So when a consumer says thank you to you, please don't pat yourself on the back, think you've done a wonderful job. When a consumer says thank you, understand what it means. They say thank you, you should go, aha! They must feel like they owe me. If they feel like they owe me, what a great time for me to ask for more because they want to do something to be able to repay that debt in that moment. They're looking for an opportunity to do something. So now you respond with an ask in the other direction, but we need permission first. If you lean straight in for the referral, you're in bad shape. I'd rather ask a question I know I'm going to get the answer for. So in fact, um, let me see if we can do something with an example right now. Is Doug, are you okay to do me a small favor? Oh, sure. There's the words that you can use to get just about anybody to agree to do just about anything ahead of time. Mm-hmm. See, the very fact that I've asked you for a favor, given that there is some context towards this, you've said yes, and you have no idea what I'm going to ask you to do. I mean, I could ask you to do anything right now. You've already said yes. Yes, that tingling means it's working. (laughs) And this is fun. So when somebody says thank you to you, you think, "Uh aha, they probably owe me. You should respond by saying you couldn't do me a small favor. They'll say yes. 
Now I could play out a complete referral script next if you want me to, but I would probably position this by saying you wouldn't happen to know. Simple change of words from do you know. So if I said, do you know someone? Now, it's a very direct question. It's very easy to say no to. Whereas if I was say you wouldn't happen to know, it throws down a challenge in its very language. And then they say, oh, no, I do know. I do yeah. know people, yeah. You wouldn't happen to know maybe just one person. Look how much difference there is in just one person versus anybody or somebody. It's now a reasonable request. I mean, it's just one. And I could put a further focus on that. You wouldn't happen to know maybe just one person, somebody who just like you. There's a compliment in those words, just like you. Not only that, there's a filter towards the memory bank of the individual you're talking to that now means they're not fishing in as big of a pond. Makes it easier for them to think of the person that you're looking for. I can even make it easier again still as if you just said thank you for me because I saved you a boatload of money. I could say you wouldn't happen to know maybe just one person, somebody who just like you, the two would like to save 22% on their expenses year over year. So now what I've done is I've loaded it with the fact that I did something great for you. I've quantified that great thing, which has amplified the fact they feel like they owe me. And I don't know a better way of trying to explain to people the the worst time to think about the things you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it, because words do matter. And the difference between people choosing you and people like you can quite often be exactly what you say when you say it and how you make it count. And it's just such an overlooked part of the conversation track. Yet my experience has been that when you can get down to the minutiae on it, you can actually turn thousands of maybes into hundreds of yeses. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting how you have to be careful with just a few words and how just one word change can make a big difference. And it really pays off what you mentioned at the beginning of the book, which where you said, throughout my studies of people, human relationships and business interactions, I have been amazed by how some people achieve dramatically different results than others with what seemed to be the exact same ingredients. Really, very, very true. Let me ask you, you make a lot of presentations. In the book, you talk about why you really shouldn't, after you've made a presentation or explained something, why you should not say, do you have any questions? <laughs> <laughs> it's possibly the worst question to ask. There are so many underlying reasons why not to ask that question, but let's hit some of the big ones. So you've just finished a presentation. Maybe you've introduced all your ideas to somebody. You want them to move forward with a decision. If you say to somebody, do you have any questions? The undertone in the question you're asking is they probably should have questions. Now, if they don't have questions at that point, or they haven't formulated what those questions might be, you've inserted indecision into their mind. They cannot say yes so that they have full clarity and understanding about what you're about and move forward with it because of your subtle assumption that they should ask more. You've guaranteed indecision. If I flip that question around and instead of say, do you have any questions? I say, what questions have you got for me? Then what I've actually done is I've talked towards the pre-programmed response of, no, I'm good. I've got everything. Now, if somebody now tells me they've got all the information they need, what does that mean they're ready to do? Make a decision. Boom, which is what we're looking for. So what I can do is just by flipping that simple phraseology around at the end of a presentation, one supports the decision-making process, one works against it. And that's what we're doing with every conversation is we are either winning towards the achievement of a decision or we are nudging people away from it. There is no standing still. So uh, just a couple other questions I, I really wanted to get to for the listener. One is, can you talk about the two words <laughs> I'll give you a hint. They, they contain 10 letters. I know exactly where you're going. These 10 letters have earned me a fortune. <laughs> What's that? They've earned me a fortune, well, you these said, words. Yeah, the, the, this has been responsible for more of your negotiating success than probably any other strategy you've employed. <sighs> yeah, let's kind of play with some of the psychology of it again first as well. Is that, is that firstly, 
people take great confidence in the fact that people like them have made decisions before them and those decisions have worked out just great. Yes, that sounds like mitigated risk. Right. And this is why tools like Yelp and Amazon reviews and those kind of things are so important to people's decision making today is that we take confidence that way around. We're looking for safety in numbers. Nobody wants to go first. Behind that point, though, is nobody tell, likes to be told what to do. But they kind of do because we all want to be led. So there's right. a conflict there. We don't want to be ordered, but we want to be led. Yeah. And we often get points in conversation where people are stuck in indecision. They're wondering what they should do. And you've probably found yourself in those moments wanting to use your expertise and guide them or tell them what to do, but you can't because you don't want to be seen as pushy. Yeah, you, you want to say, at least I do, I want to say, look, just do this. Yeah, just do this. Or what I think you should do is, right. or, you know, is, you know, you're coming at it that way around. But we don't. We want to appear to be impartial, but the other person wants safety in numbers. We can wrap up all of that by inserting just two words made up of 10 characters. Instead of telling people what we think they should do, we just talk in terms of most people. We say, look, what most people would do in your circumstances is. And little voice kicks up in their head and goes, aha, I'm most people. So if that's what most people would do, then it would be very easy for me to opt into that too. And it also allows you to be able to tell somebody what you think they should do. Instead of you saying what I think you should do is, you say, look, what most people would do in your circumstances is. And yeah. it just paths the way to make decision-making easier. Now, we're not forcing people to do stuff they don't want to do. It's not about moving a no to a yes. It's about moving a maybe to a yes. And I think that's where we can step into some of the ethics on this too, is we're not trying to manipulate people away from doing the wrong things. We're looking to speed up the decision-making process to things that fundamentally both parties knew was right. Right. So you, you talk about negotiating, and it's about one of the keys to success is maintaining control. And, and the person who is asking questions is, is really the one that's, that's more in control. Can you talk about the words that should be used, particularly when you're getting objections? Uh, this one is really helpful. There are dozens of objections that we face, and they normally fall into a handful of categories. They're a price objection. They're, I need to shop around. I need to go speak to my partner, my boss, my board. Um, I'm happy with what we're working with existingly. You know, most of them fall into those kind of categories. It's the wrong time. I haven't got them out of time. That's about it. And if we understand what an objection really is, firstly, an objection is some form of challenge to that control. That's what they're doing is when somebody raises an objection and the way which most people tend to respond to an objection is they behave like, could you imagine maybe a turtle on their back, you know, with a shell on the ground and the four legs just wobbling around in the air. That's how I see most people respond to objections. It's like with sheer overcome. panic. Yeah. Sheer panic and desperation. It's like no posture. It's like ugly to watch. We have to regain control and we can only ever regain control by asking a question. If you treat an objection as nothing more than a question and you look to find further clarification of what the other person really means, then what you do is that you put yourself back in your position of power. Now, I mentioned six different types of objections there. I could give six different questions or I can provide one that works with all six. In fact, it will work with every objection that's ever known to land. We'll put you back in control. And that response is really simple. Customer says, is that your best possible price? You say, what makes you say that? Customer says, I need to shop around before I make a decision of this kind of magnitude. You say, what makes you say that? Customer says, look, I'm really happy with who we're working with right now. You say, what makes you say that? Need I go on? I love it. Because what does that question do? It says, color this in for me. Give me the details. Tell me what really is going on. It shifts control. Mm -hmm. See, if somebody says is that your best possible price and your immediate thought is to be able to start negotiating on price, 
you don't know what you're negotiating against. Mm -hmm. If somebody's saying, is that your best possible price? What they're suggesting is you might be expensive. Now, what is it that makes something expensive? People try and tell me it's perception of value, yada, yada, yada. No, the thing that makes something expensive is what's it being compared to. You cannot tackle a price objection until you know what you're being compared to. So when I say, what makes you say that? They might say, well, there's a guy down the street who's offered me something similar for a third of your money. Or they might say, the budgets that we have available towards this project is only there. So they might say, we paid for something similar through somebody else three years ago, and this is what they charged. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that I'm going to then navigate that conversation onwards from there will be very different based on those three different scenarios that they paint back out in the other direction. What are we remembering, though, is it's questions that create conversations. It's questions that control conversations. Mm -hmm. In the medical industry, they say that prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Same is true in the sales and marketing process. It means that we should never, ever, 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 ever introduce anything to anybody unless we can say these words first. And the words we want to be able to say first are the words because of the fact that you said because of the fact that you said what you're really looking to go on to be able to achieve is a premium level service working with a long-term partner that gets your real-time results. It's for those reasons, we recommend that it's probably worthy a change moving away from the supply that you've worked with for the years that's put you in this existing situation, giving us a chance to be able to show you what can be done by alternative, knowing that if something needs to change, something needs to change. Terrific. Phil, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Only one thing is to remember the worst time to think about the things you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. Learn to control your controllables. If there's a question you get asked repeatedly, time and time again, at least be ready to respond to that one, knowing that questions control conversations. Don't think about a better answer. Think about a better question you can respond to. And if something is causing you a regular concern in your conversation track, back up, back up, back up. Find out what you should have been asking earlier as opposed to how you can better overcome that indecision. Right. You know, the, the concept, which we talked about, and you just mentioned there, it just reminds me of muscle memory, except in this case, it's, it's like verbal muscle memory. Same deal. Yeah. So what books have inspired your work and, and career? Probably the biggest one is an old book that I'm sure you've had people mention time and time again, but it's Carnegie's work, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I was, I was very fortunate in the early part of my career back when I was running retail department stores with a wonderful mentor of mine who was one of the people that bought Dale Carnegie's work to the UK um, when it franchised internationally. And I got the ability to study How to Win Friends and Influence People more so than read it and then take those principles and apply them into real world scenarios in my life that help develop more of the principles that I would now see as being true to me. So that one's probably had the the biggest impact on me uh, across the board. And then as an author, I've loved books that are, I like Seth Godin's work with things like Purple Cow and Tribes, et cetera, where they're a single idea, real well articulated and put that I can, I can embrace myself in one idea and then adopt the thing that I'm being asked of from there and then apply it instantaneously. I'm not a fan of big books and heavy books that leave me feeling like a bad person and inadequate. I like, I like <laughs> because you didn't I, finish reading it. Yeah, I know about that. Well, yeah, either that or I, or I finished reading it and I forgot what I read at the beginning. It's more, I, I like, you know, all of those great kind of little single idea books that can move me to action here, here. Yeah. And I have not heard any author answer that question by saying Moby Dick. <laughs> so are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to seeing come out i i guess the biggest book that i'm looking forward to see coming out is is my next book that comes out uh, early part of 2018 which is exactly how to sell 
So oh. I've tried to distill the sales process for everybody who's a non-salesperson. Super excited about that. And we're creating a series out of exactly. So that's um, that's a super fun thing for me. Well, I know just the podcast, so you might want to promote that on is... Mm. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe, I know. maybe. I've got a couple of books here on my bookshelf that I'm that I'm looking forward to reading, and I know that these are are people that you featured on the show as well. So, Dory Clark's Entrepreneurial You is a book that I'm looking forward to getting stuck into and read. I love her work; she's fantastic. Yes. And uh, Scott and Alison Stratton are, are friends of mine who I love their work. And um, unbranding is is something that I'm meaning to get stuck into. So they're they're recent books that I haven't read yet that I'm excited about perhaps reading over the holidays. Oh, I highly recommend them. And they've both been on the show to talk about them. Just, I loved them. And all the books the, the Strattons have. And, and Dory Clark, hers was like the third in a trilogy. And I have recommended all three of those books to so many people I know that are in the, a situation where the books really apply to them. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Learn more about me at my website, philmjones.com. You can come connect up with me on social. I'm pretty active there. I enjoy the conversations. I love to um, to hear what people have put into practice and what's worked. Don't tell me you listened to the show and you liked it. Tell me what you used, applied, and how it worked for you. Where else can they find out more? The book in particular, Amazon is my primary kind of outlet of choice. Come stop by, grab a copy there. And um, if you like it, when you like it, when you've used it, we love reviews. It's one of the finest ways you can say thank you to an author. So, um, yeah, if there's uh, something you like, then we'd appreciate some comments back there too. So toward the very end of your book, you said to the reader, I wish you all the success (laughs) that you are prepared to work for. I love that because I think there's so many folks out there that don't want to actually do the work. But for those who do, great things come. The name of the book is Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. The author is Phil M. Jones. Phil, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. And that closes the book on episode 155 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback on or suggestions to improve the show or perhaps if I can make a book recommendation, I would love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or do what lots of listeners do and connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time for a special New Year's episode as we welcome Rohit Bhargava back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Non-Obvious 2018 Edition, How to Predict Trends and Win the Future. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.